Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, the gradual for today, uh, the words that I sang between the Old Testament and the Epistle lesson is from Psalm 133. It's a short psalm. And this psalm gives us the theme for the day. And this theme is found throughout all of the lessons and the readings that you heard here today. And the theme is this, is that Christians ought to love one another. And this pertains to a specific realm of, and, and, and place for love. This is specifically talking about the love between Christians in the same congregation, in the same church. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We think that what David has in mind when he wrote these words uh, were the great festivals of the Jews in the Old Testament. And the people of God were spread out throughout all the world, uh, throughout the land. Uh, they lived even in the remotest places of Canaan. Uh, they all had different dialects and opinions and likes and dislikes and ideas, things like this. But when it came time for the great feasts that God commanded in Jerusalem, they all came together in one place and they were united by what God says. So that the nature of their unity on that day was theology. Uh, They differed in a thousand other things, but what brought them together was doctrine, was the word that God had spoken. That is the unity that God blessed them with. Now, the same thing goes for all of you here today. All of you are are, are different from one another. Some of you grew up in Florida, others in another state others in another country. For some of you, English is your first language. For others, it's another language. Uh, You all like different teams and sports, have different opinions about clothing or decor or food or cars, books, things like this. You have different backgrounds and upbringings, different sufferings and things that you're dealing with in your life. And yet, you're all gathered here today in the deepest agreement and unity imaginable. You have the same faith in the same God. You know and believe and have the same salvation that he gives to all of you. You believe, learn, and confess the same doctrine. You have the same Lord. You have the same baptism. You eat from the same uh, body and blood of Christ. And because of this, you're closer to your fellow members here, those who confess the same faith, than you are to your own bloodline. Than you are to family members who don't share the same faith. So that you don't simply have the same DNA running through your body or the same blood, but you have the blood of Christ in you along with your other members, other Christians sitting here with you. David then goes on to say what this unity is like. And he says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. And this doesn't make any sense when you first read it. Uh, He's not talking about the sensation of oil or the fragrance or things like this. Uh, Exodus chapter 30 tells us exactly what this means. In in that text, God tells Moses to take several different things, several different oils, 
And then he says, you shall make of these, plural, a sacred anointing oil, singular, blended as by the perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. And this oil was then used in the Old Testament to anoint uh, parts of the tabernacle, the temple, even Aaron himself. In other words, what David here is saying is that all of these different oils would mix together and form one single oil that was different from all the others. That's the point he's saying. When these oils were united, they made a new thing and God bestowed blessing through the uniting of those oils. So what David is saying here is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's simply it. And he's comparing this to Christians when they come together together in church. He says, when Christians come together in the unity of the faith, they are mixed together and united in a way that is deep and profound, in such a deep and profound way. And they are greater together in unity than they are separately or individually on their own. That's his point. Now, God not only tells us how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity, but also where the unity came from to begin with. It was God who did the uniting. It is God who united us. He brought us from all these different places in the world and he put us together here even this morning. Ephesians 4 tells us this. It gives us insight into it. Uh, There's an exhortation. He says, uh, the Apostle Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That is with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that we don't create this unity. Uh, we don't create it through social events or gatherings or through coffee hour or things like this. Those things are good and they have their place. But that's not the unity he's talking about. Uh, And Paul tells us to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, meaning that it was the spirit who gave us or brought us together and gave us this unity. And Paul's exhortation here is to do everything in our power to maintain it, to keep it, what was given. What this also means if he's telling us to do everything in our power to maintain it, what does that mean? What is the, uh, the opposite of that? It means that we can do things to break that unity. We have the power to then dissolve that unity that God has given to us. Which means we can turn against one another. We can be divided. And we can ignore and avoid one another even your brothers and sisters here with you who receive the same body and blood of Christ. Uh, I th- the thing is, I-, I think we know how to cause divisions. <clears throat> what you do is you read Ephesians and then you just do the opposite. <laughs> um, so you take the text and then you-, you-, you change it. If you want to sow division and strife, you do the opposite. Instead of being humble, as it says, that's what would maintain the unity. What do you do? You are to be proud and arrogant. Uh, Think of everyone else in the church beneath you. Think of them to be lower 
and dumber than you are, more stupid than you are. Uh, consider them not worth your time. Instead of being gentle, be angry and cantankerous and loud and combative. Make your own feelings and your own desires more important than your neighbors. Instead of being patient, be impatient. Be short-tempered. Make everything urgent and anxiety-ridden. Give no time for discussion. Instead of bearing with one another in love, hold grudges against one another. Be combative. Keep a record of wrongs in your mind, in your heart. Remember all of the bad things that someone did, all the wrong things they did, then throw it in their face every single chance you get. If you do these things, you can destroy the unity that God has given you with other Christians in the church. The unity that he gives you and he purchased through the blood of Christ. What you do is you simply insist upon your own way and in in doing so, you trample the precious blood of Jesus that brought you together in the first place. By the way, that's the the, the same way to break up the unity in the church is the same way to break up unity in your marriage, uh, in your family, with friends, with coworkers, all these sort of things. And then you'll see how evil and unpleasant it is when brothers are divided, when they stand against one another. So here's the problem. Uh, I didn't need to say that whole paragraph there. (laughs) Uh, I don't need to tell anyone how to destroy and divide a congregation because we know how to do it naturally. Our hearts tell us, they tempt us to this. Nobody has to teach us how to make church uncomfortable and awkward and unpleasant for others. Our sinful nature does a good job of this. There are plenty of opportunities for sin to creep in and divide us. It happens, I don't know, after the services, before the services, during the week, things like this. But uh, let me say this. I think that every pastor, every single pastor whether he's conservative or liberal or whatever, I think every single pastor will agree that the one place division and strife shows up the most is in meetings, is in church meetings. Uh, These bring out the worst in people. It could be anything. It could be something about as frivolous as the carpet, or the lights, or finances, or uh, service times, things like this. And the devil will find a way to use that to then drive division and a wedge that can't be undone. I've, I've talked to a great number of pastors, and they all have the same story from not even Lutherans, from other denominations as well. They have the same story, just with different names and different dates. It's the story of something being discussed in church. Someone disagrees with what is said, and then a feud is born. Someone acts out, the other holds a grudge, and then it's never resolved. And it goes from one day to the next, to the next week, to month, to years. And then after a few weeks, uh, one of them leaves, never to be seen again. 
that is a story as old as time. This happens time and time again, not just here in every single church. And this is why. I mean, the, why is Paul writing this 2,000 years ago? Precisely because it's a problem 2,000 years ago too. And it's been a problem every year since then and, and before then. Now, it's true that the one who leaves the church over something like this has weak faith. Fair enough. That's true. However, when members of the church raise their voice and speak down to one another, they cause others to stumble on account of them. Yes, the person gave an excuse to leave the church, but the truth is that we should do everything in our power not to give anyone a reason or an excuse to leave in the first place. In other words, if someone leaves the church, let it be on account of doctrine. Let it be on account that they don't agree with the word of God. Fine, there's nothing we can do about that. But don't let it be because of our behavior or our words or our actions. Don't let that be the, the cause for it. Uh, I want to be clear here, and I, I, I want to be very precise with what I'm saying. I'm not saying, be very careful here, I'm not saying you can't disagree with one another. That's not the point. There will be disagreements in the church as there are in literally every other sphere of life, everywhere you go. You can't get away from different opinions and different, uh, 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 b- between different uh, views and disagreements. I'm not saying you can't disagree or have a different opinion. I'm saying don't lash out at one another because of a different opinion or a disagreement. Again, I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm talking about everything else. I'm not saying disagree less. I'm saying disagree better. Learn to disagree with one another while still loving one another. And that means you shouldn't get emotional over a decision or take things personally or write each other off and ignore one another over differences. Sometimes things don't go your way. That is okay. You shouldn't force it. Um, You shouldn't force something or uh, intimidate or bully someone to get your way and then tell them to get over it. This is where it's good to remember the golden rule that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That if... If uh, you don't want someone to speak to you a certain way, then you don't speak to people in the way that you don't want them to speak to you. Um, in the Old Testament lesson, I'm, I'm going to go through the, the lessons that we heard today, the Old Testament, the epistle, and the gospel. In the Old Testament lesson, Micah 6, God says, shall I give my, uh, um, sorry, this is the, uh, uh, the writer, the author saying this, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? So what am I going to do? How do I make up for my sin? Do I give my firstborn child for this? Do I sacrifice my child, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the answer is no. God has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, show steadfast love, to walk humbly with your God. In other words, God doesn't care if you dedicate every second of your time or give your body to be burned up or to donate everything you have away. All of this means nothing if you don't love your brother. That's what God seeks, that you love one another. Galatians 6.10 says this, Let us do good to everyone, 
but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Those who are in the same congregation as you, those sitting in the pews next to you uh, today. In the epistle lesson uh, today in Philippians 1, Paul says this. He says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer. He's the pastor of the church in uh, Philippi. And he says, it is my prayer for the congregation that you love, that your love for one another may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. In other words, he's saying that Christians' love for one another ought to grow more and more, ought to abound more for his brothers in the same church. If your love is growing colder, if it is shrinking, if you're distancing yourself from one another, if you're ignoring some people now more than before, then what does that mean? That your love is dying. And if your love is dying, then the source of your love is dying, which means your faith is dying. You cannot say, the scriptures say, you cannot say you love God and hate your brother. You can't draw closer to God while also distancing yourself from one another. These things, they're tied up. They're they're bound to one another. Every Sunday, right after uh, communion, there's the post-communion colic. That's a prayer that's said right after uh, we receive the Lord's Supper. And... uh, and I pray this, these words out loud. I say, we implore you, God, that of your mercy, you would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. So that both are tied together. Both are, are united in this way. If you grow in faith, then you grow in love. And if you uh, uh, lack love, if your love grows cold, then it is your faith that has grown cold. Those who believe much, love much. In the gospel lesson, Jesus tells us how to grow in love and maintain the unity of the spirit. Peter asked this, pay attention to these words. Peter asked Jesus, he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? He's talking about the same sin repeatedly. My brother sin against me and I have to forgive him. And then he says, as many as seven times. Now, uh, this, Peter is being generous here. Because the Pharisees said, you forgive someone for the same sin three times. Three strikes and you're out. Three times and no more. That's it. If they do the same sin the fourth time, then you don't forgive them. So Peter says, well, I'm going to be even more generous. I'm going to double that. More than double it. I'm going to say seven times. That's pretty generous. And Jesus responds saying, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And in a poetic way, Jesus is saying, when it comes to forgiveness, don't count. You don't have enough fingers and toes to count this. Don't count how many times you forgive. You simply forgive. And the reason Jesus puts no limit into forgiving one another is because there is no limit to how many times God has forgiven you. He doesn't want you to count how many times you forgive because he does not count how many times he has forgiven you. He doesn't want you to count your neighbor's sins because he doesn't count yours. He doesn't want you to keep a record of wrong because he doesn't keep a record of wrong against you. 
Jesus forgives your sins. He emptied himself to make you whole. And dear saints, this is what God wants for all Christians. He wants this for your family. He wants this for your marriage. In the same way, you don't bring up a a record of wrong or list all of these things that your spouse has done against you. You forgive. And the source of that forgiveness is Christ himself. And in the same way, you do this in your family, with your children, and in your own congregation. This is what he wants for all of you, especially those of you in church here today. I know, I know what I'm saying is hard. I know that it is very hard to do. And we all struggle with this. I know every church is plagued by sin. Every family is plagued by sin and history and strife and discord. But Jesus gives us something that is greater than all of the strife and uh, 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 all of the trouble that you find in your vocation. He gives us his holy and precious blood that is enough to cover not only your own sins, but the sins of your neighbor against you also. So that's my plea and my earnest prayer for all of you here today, that you would believe that, that the blood of Jesus is enough not only for your sins, but of all the sins committed against you. That it's enough to wipe away the record of wrong that you have done and the record of wrong that has been done against you. If you have strife or discord or anger with one another, then seek one another out. Seek your brother out, reconcile with him. If your sister has sinned against you, seek her out and forgive her. If you have trouble in your marriage or your family or your congregation, Go and seek them out as God sought you. The, the, the devil tries to trick us into this and, and uh, deceive us, thinking that we need to sit back and wait for the other person. Whether it's my fault, whether it's the other person's fault. God turns both people against one another. Uh, uh, sorry, both people who are against one another. He turns them toward uh, each other. Which means, regardless of what side you're on, whether you offended someone, whether you sinned against one or you have been sinned against, you go to them. You make amends. Don't hold on to sin and grudges. When the days come that are full of tension and disagreement, I want you to remember what you heard here today. When your brother sins against you, I want you to look at the cross and see that what Jesus did uh, and see what Jesus did when you sinned against him. That is, he forgave you. And he poured his life out for you. He wiped away all of your sins. And I want you to see that he forgave you and loved you even with his dying breath. So forgive one another from the heart as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And then you will see. You will see how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.